here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. This is Scott. I'm Ollie. Yeah. Yeah. And there you have it. There you have it. All right. That's let's it. call it a day. Oh, well, day. I guess I guess we have to, you know, actually record an episode here. We have to provide content for the people. Content. That's uh, so we are content creators. Content right? providers. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I'll kick us off because this was my my idea of topics. Actually, we've both been thrown around. So yeah. I, I I can't Throwing claim clone, yeah. claim ownership. Um you can't but, clone ownership. I think I think the way to frame this is probably the the my most uh difficult professional memory as a scholar comes about from this topic. Oh, right? Interesting. All right. Right. I think you were in the room. So this is early on in my, you know, uh development as a, a researcher slash presenter, I was at like some conference and mm. I was talking about identity. Mm. And from the back of the room, a a person raised their hand and asked a question about identity and laid into me about professional identity. Because I was using mm. it as a lens uh, for my dissertation. And I had presented a couple different conferences on professional identity. Uh, and so I think it's important for us to start with this because mm -hmm. our talk today on professional identity is just our perceptions of this, yeah. you know, it's, well, a little, I mean, it's a little better than that. No, no. I okay. Mean, I will say this. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's uh, embedded in our research background. How about sure. that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, so, an, it's an informed, I just want to be clear. It's an informed. It opinion. is. It's not our opinion. And it's yeah. not like, Hey, oh, this is what we think. No, no, it's more than that. But it, it is, I mean, there is so many different takes on professional identity from a research perspective, mm -hmm. right? So many different takes and mm -hmm. yours and I, mine, we, it comes from a specific research tradition, right? Mm -hmm. It's sociocultural and yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it has a different, you know, background than maybe someone else does. Mm -hmm. So the person who, you know, challenged me in this professional setting um, was coming at it from a completely different perspective, mm -hmm. valid from their world, right? Valid from their research background, but certainly, and I think actually what's interesting is that in a lot of ways, we're talking about professional identities here, right? Because right? <laughs> Their professional identity was really informed by the discourse communities they were in and their, you know, cultures and their participations and ways of being, which was completely different than mine. Yeah. And so they were looking at my research and saying, hey, look, you've just ignored all of this. And I was like, well, hold on. I'm only looking at this stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. good times. Good times. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like it's like so many things in in social science yes um that <clears throat> your theoretical perspective actually matters in terms of how you construct things so we we work in science education so one of the most common conversations i have with people who are transitioning into science ed because almost all of them are coming from science, science or when i'm right. working with colleagues who are in science whose disciplinary background is science they always ask like well why do i need this theoretical framework like i'm i'm studying right. motivation motivation's motivation i'm just going to study it i'm going to collect some data about it it's yeah. like, whoa 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 yeah it's like hold on motivation Motiv is not like mass right 
There's like so many different takes. And I, when I talk to my uh, doctoral students about this, about you know setting a theoretical framework, they also don't get it. They're like, what are you talking about? Like theoretical framework, why is this important? And I'm like, when you throw out a word like motivation or mindset or anything, like you identity. throw out an identity, right? There's so many different takes on it. And, and all of them are based in some evidence, some, you know, research perspective. And, and in some ways, they're all valid within the discourse communities that they are in. And your take and my take on this is really from a sociocultural, you know, communities of practice, you know, participation, that Laven Wanger, mm-hmm. you know, situated cognition stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and and someone else is going to have a very different perspective based on their work. And yep. so I'm trying to preface it by saying our professional identity, identity is going to inform our take on professional identity. Mm-hmm. How about it that? sure is. I think that's good. Yeah. And we'll, we'll try and make that as transparent as possible. But identity is constructed in multiple ways by different people. Sure. Um, so one of the things that also is similar or related to the notions of science when we talk about this is, you know, when you're doing research, when you're doing scholarly research in an area, you make an effort to define the terms you're using clearly and grounding them in some foundation, because that's important when you're communicating about nuanced ideas, right? So that's why theoretical frameworks are important. And that's why being clear about your personal or your theoretical perspective on a construct is important because if two people have different definitions, then they're going to measure that thing differently. They're going to talk about it differently. And therefore, sometimes those conversations will be incommensurate with each other. They won't be able to talk to each other directly because they're constructing the idea differently. So constructing how you construct that idea is really important to having an academic conversation about any idea. Yeah, so I think where I think we might want to like talk about this from a, like, what is identity from the standpoint? Like, yeah. what are some beliefs we have about identity? Well, I think why do we one, care? Why do we care what, about identity? Right. Oh, that's a, that's a good question too. You want to, why don't you start with why do we care? Wow. Okay. Right back uh, to me. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we care because I think we recognize identity as something that is part of who we are as professionals. Like it's, it's the way that we think about ourselves and it's the way that we uh, are thought about by our community. Um, And so identity matters. Like it, it impacts the way that we do our work and, and, um, and it's important to understand identity sits at that um, sort of what's the word I'm looking for the boundary between the community and the individual, Um, Because identity isn't just personal, at least from our construction of it. It's not just what I think about myself. It is also what does my community think about me? Um, And when I think about myself, how do I think about myself relative to my community? So, um, So these are important ideas if we're thinking about teachers and teacher learning. But it's also important when we think about kids and, and kids, you know, we talk about kids identifying as scientists or having a science identity, like how important it is for all kids to feel like they can do science. And one way to talk about do kids feel like they can do science is to talk about their science identities. Yeah. I think you and I work 
mostly in teacher education. That's our background. And I think identity is one of those aspects that's really critical for our work with new teachers as they develop into more expert teachers, right? Is that that identity changes and forms and reforms and evolves because it's not a static entity, right? I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, we view, we work with, you know, beginning teachers, like in their first couple of years of teaching, and we see them as, as novices from a subject matter background, from a pedagogical background. And then we can see how, and they also take on that role in the communities, in their departments, in their schools. And then we can, you know, really see how that changes over the course of, you know, five, seven, 10 years not through you know how they talk about their students how they talk about their role as teachers how they participate within the schools and so that's a really great lens for us to view that development through that you know evolution of learning as new teachers yeah. i think that's why it's important for me and that's why it was important for my dissertation because i was you know following these these two uh female science teachers from when they first started, you know, before they started student teaching all the way through their first three or four years of teaching and, and how, you know, their identity changed through that period. Mm-hmm. And all of it was captured in their, not only in their view of self and how they communicated themselves, but also how they talked about themselves within their school communities, which mm-hmm. was, yeah. Well, and also how they act and behaved in their classrooms. Right. So, right. cause you, you went and observed that too. So yep. it is like <clears throat> identity is multifaceted and it is complicated and complex, but it's, but it is a way of thinking about learning, right? Like, cause learning, especially from a, from a point of view of like Leighton Wanger or communities of practice, like changes in identity are the definition of learning. Like that's yep. how, you know, when somebody's learning is because their identity changes Um, and so it, you know, we've talked about this in terms of teacher professional learning. It's one of the challenges we have in helping teachers to try and develop new ways of teaching is it's not as simple as just learning new techniques. They really have to become new kinds of people. They have to change their identity. And that is hard work in any circumstance. And it's particularly hard work if you've got a strong sense of what your identity is that's been established by years of practice and and recognition often for for your your good teaching right so yeah it's contextual so if you're like the person who's like an an expert right or viewed as an expert quote unquote i'm using my fingers and all of you listening out there can't see me doing Mm -hmm. air quotes air quotes yeah so if you're viewed as an expert and you've been viewed as an expert for like decades, it's kind of hard to say, yeah, I'm going to adopt this new, you know, pedagogical technique, this instructional strategy, this stance on learning where now my identity is I'm a novice, yeah. right? Because I'm taking on a completely different set of practices and a different set of, you know, strategies where I like, I'm now not the expert. Now I'm like, and that's a humbling thing. And that's like, we all would bristle at that. Like I would say, like I've moved uh, careers a couple of times, not careers. I've I've always been a teacher, but I've moved environments. So Mm. I was teaching at one school and then I went to another school and then I, you know, came to university and every one of those moves, I went from being like a, you know, a recognized, you know, 
expert, mm-hmm. quote unquote, again, um, within that those buildings, within those schools, to then just being like the new kid, right? I was like, yeah. you know, like no one knew who I was. No one knew what I was able to do. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that is a really humbling experience to be, to have my identity shift so quickly because I'm just like, hold on, like I've been at this for years. And it's like, nah, not within this community or not. So you yeah. have to like, you know, it's like that, it, like you said, it's not just our view of self, but in relation to the communities, in relationship to the practices and, and the schools and the discourse communities, all of that of which we work. Yeah. Yeah. And and identity is, you know, a thing that is in flux across those communities. So and we all know this, like we a f- fancy term for the more formalized version of this is code switching. But, you know, like you behave differently when you're in your you know, in your faculty meeting at the university than you do when you're at a concert with a bunch of your friends and, or with your family for, you know, the holidays or whatever. Right. And the, like, you don't think of yourself as different people in those contexts, but in many respects, your identity is quite different in those contexts. You are not like, I am not professor Scott or whatever, when I'm hanging out with my family and, you know, for the weekend, and my cousins and and aunts and uncles are there. Like I'm just Uncle Scott, right? And I have my attributes, and and I'm recognized for being a certain kind of person in that environment. But and there, I'm not saying there's no consistency across that, but it is, as you say, very contextual. And so thinking about identity and its contextual nature is one of the interesting and important things to do. And and when we're talking about learning and academia, yeah, like I. And I have a fantasy football draft coming up. And so in that community, I'm a very different person than I am in my scholarly community, which is very different than the person I am with my family. And it's like all of those things are really socially constructed, socially informed, informed by the people that are in those communities and, you know, how I interact with them. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Yeah. So, so why are we talking about identity today, Ollie? Well, I mean, one, I think it's it's important for us not only to think about it from a teacher standpoint, but I think it's also important for us to think about it from a student standpoint, because I think w- how we position students in science, right, um, really is going to inform their identities as science learners. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to talk about it, because if we you know, present science as that science is this subject that they just digest or, you Mm. know, yeah, that they learn through transmission rather than through participation, that that informs our identity in a certain way. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see so many people who say, yeah, I'm not good at science, right? I'm not good Mm -hmm. at science because, you know, they can't maybe memorize all of the different biological taxonomies, right? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, flashcards with, you know, uh, different oxidation states or whatever, right? I mean, yep. if, that's, if that's the, you know, the way that the science practice, the practice of science is communicated to students, then that creates that sort of identity of how they see themselves as like not somebody who can be good at science, not as somebody who can, you know, digest all this information. And I think that's, that's an important way for us to think about it because if it's, if it's, if it's socially constructed, if this this concept of identity is socially constructed, then if we change the environment in which students learn and participate, then we can change the identities of themselves. 
So yeah. if we put them in places where they can participate differently, like by engaging in the practices of science or, mm-hmm. you know, as fast as we can in a classroom environment, then we can impact their identities. Yeah. Well, I, right. Again, going back to, if we think about this from a theoretical point of view, <clears throat> with Laven Wenger, like changes in practice are changes in identity and vice versa. They happen together. And so if you give students opportunities to practice differently, you change their identities um, and you change them in that classroom, but you also potentially then change them in a broader sense. Like Anna Svard has a definition around identity that, you know, we've sort of implicitly said this, but the stories that you tell about yourself and that are told about you is your identity. And so if you think about a kid going home and talking to their parents about, oh, what'd you do in science class today? You know, what what kinds of things are you doing? Um, it's a very different conversation if what the kid did today was take notes um, in preparation for an exam or they were given a phenomenon that they had to try to explain that they didn't understand. Um, those Those stories that they go home and tell about themselves as students end up sounding very different. Uh, and therefore, by definition, those kids change who they are, um, both in school and out of school when they're when they're telling these stories. So I think it it is important to really think about um, how we create environments to allow kids to engage in practice, because that practice does define who they are. Yeah, I, I read something interesting the, uh, recently. If you heard of the, the, uh, the, is it the Scully effect or the Mulder effect? Like I was mm. never a, you know, you know who the, X-Files, the, sure. Yeah, the X-Files. I was never a big X-Files person, mm. but they, uh, it's Scully is the, the female character. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So they, Mul- they the, yeah. Yeah. And so um, there was the, like a whole host of female scientists who credit seeing the X-Files and seeing Scully represented in there as, as a way of seeing themselves as future scientists. Hmm, interesting. It is interesting because it's like, it, because they saw some representation, they could view themselves differently. And I was like, wow, what, how impactful that can be. Cause they, they were like, yeah. And so there's a whole host of people that, you know, have gone into science because of this. And it's like, they identified it as the Scully effect, hmm. which is like wild. But I mean, I, I know that's an aside, that's a rabbit hole, but I think that um, to me, it's representative of the fact that what we can do is impact how students see themselves through the practice and through participation, through representation and all of that, you know? And so what we do in our classroom matters. And so if we engage them in ways that they can, you know, see themselves as scientists or participate as scientists and engage in processes and explanations, yeah. Maybe maybe we have an impact on, you know, this. I mean, I, I know we don't like the term pipeline problem, but there are people that don't go in the in the science, you yeah. know, because they don't see themselves as scientists. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it's not so much I think that we object to the pipeline, but I think um, it's it puts a, an economic value on kids yeah. learning rather than saying, look, we want all of our students to feel like science is something that's accessible to them and that they can participate in, in a way that makes sense to them, because that's how you get literate citizens who can make good decisions, whether they are end up being, you know, 
engineers and scientists or not, the point is, do do we help them see themselves and be in a community where they are recognized as people who know how to do science? And I think we have to do that because that's how people can feel confident about saying, oh, what's the evidence for this thing that you're asking me to believe, right? You're you're coming to me with these claims and I want to know what your evidence is for these claims because claims shouldn't, especially in science, should be based on something. They shouldn't just be, you know, noodlings that you've come up with. They need to be, you know, meaningfully grounded in evidence. And, but you, you can tell kids that you can say like, this is a thing that science does, but for it to be part of who they are and how they practice in the world, they have to know how to do it. And they have to have done it in a way that makes sense to them and that they were able to make sense about. I, 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 Smiled when you said noodlings. Yes. I know. <laughs> noodlings. <laughs> well, I, I think what's important, I, noodlings, I, I think, capture something I, that's important. Um, because how do we, like, capture, you know, identity? How do we, because, I mean, we, we, we've been talking about this from, a, you know, conceptually. Um, but I think that we also talked a little bit about it from, like, a research standpoint. Like, how do we as teacher educators, as, you know, researchers of this stuff, like, how do we, how do we track this? How do we like, I mean, I, I know that you use the big, you know, teacher identity survey, right? The thing that's been, mm-hmm. oh, no, you don't. That's sarcasm. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, uh, surveys. Only, if only <laughs> listeners, you could see the horror that was on my face while Ali was saying that, but Yeah. <laughs> no, because I mean, we thought like for people who have been listening to this for a long time, recognize that like, um, you know, whenever we put this in a survey or we put it in some sort of instrument, that it loses all of its contextual value, all mm-hmm. of it. And then it becomes, we're not talking about the the subject or the con- concept anymore. We're talking about the tool. The tool mm-hmm. becomes the concept. And mm-hmm. so I think you and I take different perspectives in terms of how this thing gets captured, how it gets, you know, I want to use the term measured because we don't really measuring it. Yeah. Like, no, but I, we are, we are gathering evidence about yeah. it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, um, it, like you have to, I mean, I think we would say this about anything, but but if you want to understand learning, you have to see it happening in process. And you and if identity change is learning and we want to know about identity, then we have to watch it um, where it happens. Right. And so if you're looking at kids identities in science, that means you're looking at science classrooms to see how are kids participating? How are they acting? How are they being seen by others, both their peers and their teacher? Um, in terms of their science identity and how are they seeing themselves and expressing that in in class. And with teachers, it's a layer up from that, right? We look at them in their professional learning context when they're talking with colleagues or, or in more formal learning context where they're in professional learning environments where they're, where they're explicitly there to learn. Um, but, you know, also seeing it in PLCs and you can, but, but for us, I think as sociocultural researchers, we say we have to see it in the authentic activity. We can't ask those people about their identity and assume that that is an accurate representation of their identity. It's, it's a story that they tell in the moment in a particular context, but if you really want to understand their identity, you need to see how it's enacted in community. How, how, 
how are they behaving and how are the people around them responding to that behavior and how do they talk about it? Yeah, this is goes back a ways, but I, uh, there's some research where they uh, were looking at science teachers at the collegiate level and specifically whether they were in an acting inquiry based instruction. And mm. that was the term they used. Right. So this has got probably like 10 or 15 years ago or, or lo- longer. And so they had an instrument, right? A survey mm. that they gave them. Mm-hmm. And then they interviewed the folks and then they're like, okay, so these folks are like saying, you know, they're inquiry minded. They have, you know, they passed the test, the inquiry test, yeah. but then they went to observe them in classroom environments. And it, it was so diametrically opposed to how they talked about themselves as, mm-hmm. as, as teachers. So while they, you know, said this, they, they talked the talk, they didn't walk the walk, right? They. Yeah. Which, you know, fundamentally goes, goes back to this problem that, that we have historically with studying teacher learning is a lot of it is based on self-report and, right. and that like, we know that's notoriously bad because in context um teachers want to present themselves they want to have a particular um identity right they want to be recognized as being a particular kind of teacher and that sometimes means that they talk about themselves in ways that are not entirely accurate to their actual practice because in the social context of doing the instrument which it is a social context because they know they're responding to somebody. Somebody's going to read this and evaluate it. That changes the way that they respond to those questions. Um, so, again, if you want to know about people's identities, you have to watch them in the context in which those identities are being enacted. Again, you know, like looking at me on the weekends with my family is different than looking at me when I'm in a science classroom working with pre-service teachers learning to teach. Yeah. Everyone says they're a good parent. Like no one says I'm horrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, ah, but you know, just go to watch, like go to, go to Walmart, go to Target or go to, you know, and you're going to see lots of, you know, parenting go to, in go practice. Go to a sporting event. Go to a sporting event, right? Mm. And, you know, and you will go to, a, even go to a playground and you're going to see parenting very differently than how people talk about their parenting. And I think, because, I mean, parenting is an identity that people hold. Like I'm a parent and how we you know, talk about it, how we practice parenting, you know, those are, they may be very different. And, and it's the same thing with teaching, right? No one says that. Yeah. I'm a horrible teacher. <laughs> you know, no. no one would, no one would want to, you know, you know, describe themselves that way. No. Um, and, and, but talking about themselves or like answering a survey and then doing that in practice, I think, you know, are very, can be very different and how they mm-hmm. represent their identity is is captured more holistically than just, you know, using the the big survey instrument. I don't even know if there is a survey instrument. I just made that up. Well, I mean, it seems like I'm sure there there's is. some kind of, it, whether it's a, a well-vetted and, you know, um, adopted instrument is a different question, but somebody had to have done some sort of professional identity for teacher's instrument at some point in time. Right. You would think. Yeah. <sighs> 
Well, if not, Ali, you can do it, man. I, I, I'm confident in your ability to make a list of things that make up teacher identity <laughs> so that you can measure it. <laughs> That's great. Because, you, you know, I'm a big fan of lists. I know you yeah. you hate all things lists. So. I, hate, I, I even hate listing lists. And... <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what else are we going to say about professional identity? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I think, I mean, this was sort of a batting it around episode. Maybe we'll return to it in a particular context. But um, yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, the way, you know, it, it comes back to this, like, how do we think about learning and what it means? And then um, this is an aspect of it that's really important. It's it's how it's how the individual manifests themselves in sociocultural theory, right, is is in terms of identity. So, um, that's, it's an important construct, but it also isn't a set of beliefs that we use as a lens for looking at the world, right? That's a, that's a different perspective than we take on it. Yeah. And, and our take is, it's not the same take that somebody else in working at a different, you know, theoretical perspective. I just exactly. keep worrying that someone is going to send us hate mail, just like yeah. that person, you know, raised their hand at the back of a the conference said, Hey, hold on. You're not telling the whole story. We are not telling the whole story. We're telling yeah. part of it. The part right. that is informed by our background and our work. Right. I mean, we're yeah. telling, we're, we're using our theoretical frame to talk about this idea. Are there other theoretical frames to talk about this idea? Of course there are, yes. um, you know, self image, self concept, um, these kinds of things, you know, self beliefs, self efficacy, you know, these are all psychological constructs that have been used to to describe this same idea of like what makes you you and how are you you over time, right? Because that changes. Like I'm not who I was when I was 15 or 25 or whatever, right? And I, it's, I'm not the same person I'll be at 75 or 80 right. either. So we understand that it's not a stable thing in the sense that, you know, I'm always the same. And yet, in the same way, I'm also recognized on some level as being the same person. So, how do you how do you sort of grapple with that and think about what the differences there are, and um, what does it what does it mean for me to be the same over time, but also to be different over time? And how does that how do you, how do you think about that from an analytical perspective? It's you know it's a fascinating question. Yeah, I think that the 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 person who you know asked the question at at the conference was really coming at it from, from a gender and, and, and race and diversity perspective that, you know, while I was looking primarily at, you know, science and science teaching and professional identity from that perspective, um, their take was, you know, I was ignoring some other really critical parts of people's identity that Mm -hmm. needs to be brought in. And, and I don't, I'm not dismissing that. I'm just, it was outside of the lens of, of the things I was looking at. So, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. and those kinds of identity markers are, you know, things that we're very familiar with. They're categories for describing ourselves in particular ways, our race, our gender, our ethnicity, our sexual preference, like all those, all those pieces are parts of our identity, but, but um, it it doesn't, doesn't negate any of the conversation that we just had about the nature of identity and how that has to do with communities, because at least part of all of those identities is the relationship between the individual and the community in which they participate. So, um, 
it's it's always true whether you're specifically calling out identity markers of a, of a particular kind or whether you're just talking about identity as how an individual relates to their community either way it's the same yeah 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 want to move to joys want to talk about some sure. joys yeah yeah should i go first if you want to or i can go okay you go all right well the it, it was it's been a particularly hot weekend Oof. uh in central pennsylvania and so uh you know we had like you know, 95, 99 degree days just recently. And so I was like, you know, when you have a hot day like that, it's like, okay, we should just stay in or mm. like go to the pool or do something like that. So I convinced my wife to do a double feature. We went to the movies and saw Ooh. two movies in a row. Oh. And that, that is- you, Wait, that, can I ask, did you pay for both? Uh, yes. Okay. okay. Wait, what, just, what do you mean? Like, well, I'm just saying when I was a oh, kid, just, we like snuck in and stayed you, you go to one movie and then oh, when no, that no. Was movie was over, you just sort of migrate to a different theater and now you're seeing a, now you're seeing a double feature. No, we were, we went to a little like independent movie theater oh, yeah. and we, okay. you know, and we want to see this, you know, this, you know, this little movie theater be successful. So yeah, we, you know, we, it's okay. You're not teenagers we, anymore. You don't no. sneak into movies. So we saw the, here are the two movies. They're both independent movies. We saw Bottoms, which mm-hmm. is sort of like a, female fight club comedy set in a high school, you know, it's, it's, okay. a, it's, it's like a coming of age, you know, LGBTQI, you know, movie. It's, it's, okay. it's, 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 it's great. Um, my wife didn't care for it as much as I did, but, um, but the, the movie that was a like really laugh out loud, funny that we saw was theater camp. And oh, theater- I have heard about this one. And they both, both of these movies, what's interesting is this wasn't intentional, but, but they both star Sydney, the car- the actress who plays Sydney in, in The Bear. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So she's in both of them. I, I think her name's Io, A-Y-O, and I'm not going to even attempt the last name. Uh, but um, she was phenomenal in both of them and mm. uh, plays different, very different roles in, in each. Um, but theater camp, because my kids are involved in theater – we actually went and got them and brought them to the second movie. And uh, the second movie was just awesome. They, there were moments where I was like laughing so loud that other people could hear me across the theater because I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So very funny. It's this, I mean, it's a short little movie. It's like an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, but it is very entertaining. And if you have any involvement with theater at all, like any, like my, my, my daughter's been on stage. My, my son has worked in, you know, in the booth. Both of them are very involved in theater. Um, it's, you'll, you'll find a lot that resonates with you. Cool. Yeah. I just had this vision of did you did you ever see Cape Fear with Robert De Niro? Yes. Okay, so there's a scene when he's in the theater and he's smoking a cigar and laughing like yeah. intentionally. La- so I'm imagining you you've sort of got a Robert De Niro vibe to you. Wow, you, know, you got a I little bit of that. I've never heard that. Yeah, ever. come on. He, he's menacing in that movie. <laughs> he's totally menacing in that movie, but he's not always menacing. But in that movie, I'm just I'm trying to imagine Ollie like sitting there smoking a cigar and laughing so loud that people in the theater are like, "What's going on with this guy?" I, I can't think of anything that would be grosser for me than smoking a cigar. Like, just not my not my jam. Okay, well, no, no. just laugh loudly at the theater then. Yes, just loudly. What about you? Joys for you, friend? Uh, joys for me. Well, this time of year, uh, around around the Labor Day weekend, one of my big joys is always U.S. Open tennis. Um, I've started 
I hesitate to even really describe myself as a tennis player because I'm pretty bad at it, but I do like to play tennis and, um, and it's always fun to watch people who are really good at something. And somehow this year it feels like, I mean, there's some, there's some people who are really having fun, um, playing tennis, uh, these days, like, uh, Alcarez, Carlos Alcarez is one that really, he's a Spanish player who's number one in the world right now, but he's just fun to watch and has a sort of, um, exuberance to him that is really nice. Like he, he's not banging his tennis racket on the court until it breaks. And, you know, like these sort of outbursts of anger, he's much more likely to be joking around. And, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, I think he's French player, Monfi, who's older, but also is almost like a goofball on the court. Like you can look him up and see some of the stuff he's, he, he does these almost like trick shot things in the middle of, of real matches and then also does stuff outside of them. Um, but I, I feel like there right now there's a lightheartedness to tennis that I, I don't recall. It used, you know, when I was younger and used to watch tennis, it seemed very intense and I think it's still very intense, but there seems to be a sense of, um, you know, we'll all be better off if we, if we have fun out there and you hear that in sports a lot, like, Oh, go and have fun out there. But usually people don't, um, so it's, it's been really nice to, to watch this year and, um, uh, see, see some of that, but there, yeah, it both on the men's and the women's side, there seems to be a little bit less, um, sort of nasty tension and more, um, sort of, uh, humorous camaraderie, which I like to see, you know, like people are being good sports to each other, which is nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I don't watch much tennis. My brother's a, he's played forever. Uh, you know, and he watches usually if we're like together and it's around the, you know, around 4th of July or around Labor Day, he's watching, you know, yeah. either whether yeah. it's either the U.S. Open or Wimbledon or whatever. Um, yeah, I've never th- like really taken to the sport. It's not my jam, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't for, I played a little when I was a kid and then I was away from it for a long time. And, and then the last three, four years I've gotten back into it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's fun and uh but i i do enjoy watching it so there you yeah, go there you go go watch some u.s open yeah go watch some Match movies still going get out on. of the, go get, go out get of the it heat. yeah get out of the heat get double out of the features heat. yes double features i love a double feature yeah yeah there, movies. there aren't there aren't many formal double features anymore at least that i see no um, not not really little it's, theaters i guess probably still do them but yeah, I mean, I, I, I just I love watching the watch movies in a theater. I love to go to a movie theater and go see it. There. It's a, it's just a different vibe. It, it, like watching, like a communal experience. Watching a movie with other people is still one of my my greatest joys, to be quite honest. And yeah, no, it's and a lot of fun. When I went to go see Barbie, and there was like a line out the door, and so many people were doing it, it was it was great to see theaters coming back. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm hopeful that someday soon I'll have an Alamo Draft House type movie theater experience near uh, me because those are pretty cool, but they're none near me. So, well, that is one of the nice things about this little theater, this little independent theater, is they have a a little microbrewery outside that mm-hmm. you can like right in the lobby get yourself a microbrew and come into the perfect. Yeah, yeah. see, our state theater here in town has that. Um, you know, they have a bar and and that stuff, but. Um, Alamo Draft House, 
for those of you who don't know, it's it's a small chain that has only a few locations, but basically they they have full table service, but they also have really interesting like pre-movie stuff that's not just standard trailers. They do a lot of research about the movies they show and they play that in the beginning. And it's just a, it's a cool atmosphere and um, it's very different to your typical sort of movie theater experience, but it's, but it's very communal and cool and you get to eat and drink while you're watching. So that's fine. Yeah. There you go. It's like, All right. Like being at home, but with a bunch of other people. Yeah. The communal mm. experience exactly. like that. All right. Well, I guess we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.